I am Dr. Barbara Kiel, and some clients of mine prefer to call me Dr. Bibi. And to be honest, I quite like it. Welcome to my podcast. To be honest, a podcast that is born out of mental health efficacy. I believe in the power of intention, and my intention for this podcast is to educate whoever wishes to listen, and to make a paradigm shift in how we perceive mental illness. I also believe mental health education is key, and that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is to invest. In your own mental health. Let's face it, we all need to learn how our minds work, and have the skills to deal with life's ups and downs. And more importantly, let us strengthen our ability to better connect with and support each other. Strong, empathetic. Nurturing and caring relationships have the power to prevent everyday challenges from becoming more concerning issues like mental illness. The responsibility to renew focus on your own mental well-being begins now. As usual, let us set the energy of this episode together. You may wish to put your hand on your heart. And close your eyes, unless you're driving or operating heavy machinery. So take a deep breath in, and as you exhale, let your thoughts go. Let any tension in your body go. Let your worries go. And let your past go. Now take a moment to plug into the greater energy of the universe. Feel your heart, and imagine us all connected in a unified field of divine white light. And know that you are safe. All is well, and so it is. So take another deep breath in. And exhale out loud with a sigh. And when you are ready, slowly open your eyes. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to To Be Honest. I have no doubt anyone out there who is recovering from their battle with an obsession knows how it feels to be tired of being sick and tired. You know what I'm talking about. Well, this is the painful last stage of holding on to old ideas, and hopefully, what comes of this is the courage to admit defeat and a willingness to change one's way of thinking and behaving. So, in today's episode, I am going to explore with you the road to recovery for relationship and love addicts. Uh, for love addicts, this is the moment of which they are ready to move on. As Robin Norwood, the author of Women Who Love Too Much, she said, and I quote: "All the struggles 
drama and chaos of the past have lost their appeal. Unquote. So the love addict at this time has finally had enough. Enough is enough. So once they are ready to face their problems, meaning their addiction, they come to the second most difficult hurdle on their road to recovery, and that is admitting to their part in the creation of these problems. And I often call this owning your side of the street. To be honest. Whether we like to acknowledge it or not, when things go wrong in our lives, it is because we have said or done something at some point to get the ball rolling. Now, in most unhealthy relationships, you find a partner who is a contaminator, and the other is a contributor. In other words, one is spreading the poison, and the other is an enabler. So let me share with you the following message from Irene de Castillo in her book *Knowing Woman* about how our outer world responds to our inner frame of mind. So please take note, and I quote: "Everyone knows those horrible days when everything goes wrong. One just misses the train, one's boss is in a bad mood, and the waiter is rude." If one is capable of being objective at all on such a day, admittedly rather a difficult feat, one knows that at the root of the trouble lies one's own negative mood. Like calls to like. In intimate relationships, it is fundamental to know that it is one's own inner attitude of mind which actually influences the reaction of one's partner. For instance, the wife who complains of a bullying husband has generally brought it upon herself by a cringing attitude. In fact, her own unconscious tendency to cringe will have caused her to choose a bully for a mate. If she can learn to stand up for herself, it is extremely likely that, after the first shock of dismay at being thwarted, the husband's disdain will turn to admiration, even though he may keep his admiration to himself. Similarly, the wife who despairs of her husband's inability to understand her needs to recognize that she has not only failed to tell him what she means; she has probably failed to tell herself. Women's own confusion today about who they are and what they want of life causes a fog around them, which confuses everyone. Far more important than an uttered declaration of her meaning is her own inner clarity. If we can go as far as admitting our own partial responsibility for outer conditions, we have already entered that path towards freedom, where we need be no longer the blind, impotent victim of our environment. Unquote. Now, my audience, if you are experiencing uncomfortable feelings because you think the author is blaming the victim, then it's normal because it does sound like as if the author, Irene, is blaming the one that is being bullied and women addicts. However, if you read it again, well, in this case, if you listen to it again. It is really what I have been talking about, and is to take responsibility for your own life. 
including your relationship, obviously. It takes conscious effort to be aware of your own thoughts and behaviors, and to look inward rather than outward at our partner to find out what causes, what is the root cause of our addictions, whatever they may be. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times is defense mechanisms when you are young, and that is not your fault. We are not saying it is the fault of a young child who was not able to understand the environment and therefore talented enough to come up with these defense mechanisms in order to survive or to be accepted or to be loved. However, we are talking about that child has now grown up and is an adult. So it's high time to learn to take responsibility for the things that we don't want to look at, and the things that we don't want to look at, they are still causing us havoc. So basically, the message here is that regardless of your gender or your sexual orientation, it is important to have internal boundaries. Because if you don't have your own internal boundaries, you wouldn't know what you want and what you don't want. I'm sure you can imagine. If we are not sure about our own needs and wants, how are we going to have open communication and asking what we want from our partner? It's nearly impossible, isn't it? So start looking inward. And as I often say, take accountability for your side of the street. So it's either you are a contaminator or you are a contributor in an unhealthy relationship. Because if you are neither, you would have ended the relationship quickly and with less pain. The very first step for love addicts is that they must begin to challenge their old ways of thinking and behaving. To do this, they must evaluate themselves and pinpoint the exact feelings, values, thoughts, and actions which cause them to be drawn into addictive loving. So, with this in mind, it is recommended that love and relationship addicts in recovery make a personal inventory of their weaknesses or an analysis of their addiction. And if you have challenge in doing that, seek professional help. There is more than one way to do this, of course, but it is recommended that it be a written inventory. Maybe love addicts can use the list of symptoms that I covered in the previous episodes as their guide, responding to each one as it speaks to their particular condition. Or they can find a support group and make notes of what they learn about themselves. They might even take daily notes as they observe themselves and then expound on it later. Anyways, whatever. Methods love addicts use to prepare their inventory. They should remember to be as thorough and honest as possible. Otherwise, it does not serve the purpose. They should mention the feelings, values, thoughts, and types of behavior that are causing the problems with examples, with specific examples, and then explore their motivations and newfound awareness of this as a liability rather than an asset. They might even want to write about specific changes they want to make, meaning their goals. 
Most of all, they need to remember that it is not how you do an inventory that counts, but the fact that you do it is already a win for the love and relationship addict. So taking action is the key to recovery. So obviously, the next step in recovery is to make changes. So what kind of changes? Changes that include outer modifications of behavior and an inner shift in values and thinking patterns. The changes love addicts make will be based on the insights they have gained while preparing their inventory, and they should remember that the person they need to change is themselves. By the simple fact that the only person that you can control is yourself, not your partner. So, my audience, the next logical question is: If changing is crucial, where does the willingness to change come from? Well, to be honest, there is no one answer because some love addicts never find the willingness to change. They live in a state of denial all of their lives. Other addicts claim that they want to change, and yet they do not want to do the hard work. And for other love and relationship addicts, they are only in the early stages of addiction to love, and yet they want to change. All they need is some help, particularly from the guidance of a professional. Unfortunately, most love addicts end up suffering quite a bit before they are willing to change. So I suppose no one really knows why some love addicts are willing to change, and others are not. But if that magic moment finally arrives, recovery has begun. When love addicts are ready to change, they should do the easy things first to build up their confidence, and then other changes will follow. Success builds upon success. Sometimes inner changes come from outer changes, and sometimes outer changes are a byproduct of inner changes. And now let me share with you some of the characteristics of recovering. You will know you are on the road to recovery when you are admitting helplessness to control this addiction. You cease to blame others for your problems or your addiction. And focusing on self, taking responsibility for own actions, seeking help for recovery from a professional and support group like the AA, beginning to deal with own feelings rather than avoiding them, and also building a circle of well friends with healthy interests. Now, I have been asked many times whether therapy and support groups really help. So I'm going to end this episode by answering this question. Let me be direct: therapy and support groups really do help, and the reason for that is because recovery requires a certain environment. It definitely cannot be obtained by reading a book and expecting a magical transformation. It can only be obtained. And achieved by working hard, consciously, with the helpful guidance of those who understand the problem of obsession and dependency in relationships. Therefore, love addicts in recovery should go for help. Help can be found in therapy and/or support groups. Both these environments are conducive to recovery for the following reasons. 
In therapy and support groups, love addicts can be honest and share secrets because professionals and the members of the support group they are not judgmental. This has always been therapeutic for people who are bearing the burden of so much inner turmoil and shame. Therapy and support groups also provide a safe place to learn how addiction to love manifests itself. Love addicts learn how their addiction gets started, when it gets started, and what the symptoms are. And most of all, love addicts learn what can be done about the challenge and how to initiate and maintain recovery. Therapy and support groups provide love and relationship addicts with a lot of badly needed unconditional love, particularly in therapy. In early recovery, love and relationship addicts do not know how to love themselves. However, a therapist or support group can do for them what they cannot yet do for themselves. Now, so if you know my work, that is exactly what I do. They can provide the unconditional love that promotes recovery, the acceptance that will someday be transformed into self-love. As the American psychiatrist and author Morgan Scott Peck in *The Road Less Traveled*, he puts it this way, and I quote: "It is obvious then that in order to be healed through psychotherapy, the patient must receive at least a portion of the genuine love of which the patient was deprived in childhood. If the psychotherapist cannot genuinely love a patient," Genuine healing will not occur. Unquote. From my years of professional experience, I absolutely agree with Dr. Peck. So, therapy and support groups also provide a working environment which guard against procrastination and denial, even on those bleak days when recovering love and relationship addicts are resisting the truth. They know deep down they would not be in therapy or a support group if they didn't have a problem. Both support groups and therapy help love and relationship addicts recognize a slip or a relapse. Calling people in their support group can help recovering love and relationship addicts avoid dysfunctional behavior, like the alcoholic who calls his sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous before they take that first drink. The love addict can be advised by someone in their support group not to get married on the third date, or obsessed with the other person soon after the first date. Moreover, not only do recovering love and relationship addicts need help, they need it on a regular basis. One of the most common mistakes recovering love and relationship addicts make is to prematurely drop out of therapy. Sometimes they do this because of complacency. They don't think they have a problem anymore, or they feel strong enough to make it on their own. This attitude can easily lead to regression. Sometimes love addicts are discouraged by the slow pace of recovery as well. They just get tired of struggling, so they drop out. Whatever prompts love and relationship addicts to drift away from an environment conducive to recovery, they should be warned that their addiction is an insidious problem, learned early and practiced well, practiced for decades and decades. 
so it does not just disappear one day. For a long time and maybe forever, it goes into remission, and it takes constant vigilance to keep it in that inactive state. Now, my audience, I understand that it may be disconcerting to find out that there is probably no permanent cure for addiction to love and relationship. In my decades of professional experience, the good news is the struggle may get easier, but there is always the possibility of regression. Now, having said that. I'm not saying that love addicts will always be in therapy or always have to attend a support group. No, that's not what I'm saying. It just means that recovering love and relationship addicts must not be in a hurry to give up their support system. It could take years for them to reach a point where the changes brought about in recovery can survive without the support of those who have helped them along the way. And by always placing themselves in the company of people working toward continued recovery, so love addicts are giving themselves the best opportunity to succeed. Because good soil and tender, loving care produce lovely flowers, and therapy and/or support groups provide the optimum environment for recovery from addiction to genuine, healthy love. Thank you for listening. Until next week, stay safe, learn heaps, and find the courage to make positive changes in your life. Bye for now. You can find this podcast, to be honest, on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and my website, www.drbarbarakiao.com. D R B A R B A R A K I A O. dot com. <laughs>